These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last time, we looked at the story of a man who begged the gods for the chance to have children, and ended up on a wild, meandering ride as he lived through the consequences of seeking the gods' help in his affairs. This week, we're going to look at a man who begged the gods for the chance to have children, will end up on a wild, meandering ride as he lives through the consequences of seeking the gods' help in his affairs. That said, though these two classic Canaanite myths both open on the same note, they travel in very different directions. Today we begin the tale of Akhat, once called the tale of Dan El before the fragment with the actual title was discovered. Dan El, or as I'm going to call him Daniel, uh, depends on the particulars of the translation that you're looking at, is a figure who may or may not show up as a reference in the Hebrew Bible. And the matter of the possibly missing letter I in his name is one whose details are frankly beyond me. I don't know if the I should be there or not. I'm going to call him Daniel, because I'm primarily working off a translation that calls him that. But know that the matter of whether he is named Dan-El or Daniel is relevant for various debates that don't really have much to do with this story by itself, but gets into biblical interpretation questions. Now, Daniel, as our first readable line tells us, is a man of the mysterious Rapiuma, who may be the venerable dead ancestors. They may be minor gods, they may be underworld ghosts, and they may be sort of demigod or mortal heroes. It really isn't clear what's meant for someone to be part of the Rapiu, except that it tells us he is highly regarded just in general. Interestingly, much of what we do know about the Rapiuma comes from the Hebrew Bible, where various verses mention the Rephaim, as they're called in Hebrew, either as a class of the honored dead down in Sheol, or as a race of giants who once lived in Canaan. Specifically, though, Daniel was a Harnamite, a man from the region of Harna, and a faithful and pious one at that. Still, we see him at the start of the story as a man with a problem. He's prayed every day to the gods with a single request, and on the seventh day of continuous prayer, Baal himself descends from the heavens and is moved to compassion by Daniel's obvious need. Baal cries out that it's so sad to see Daniel's pain because Daniel has no son and can have no son. And for this reason, he calls out to the gods. And then Baal turns and he takes Daniel's side and joins him in prayer. The god Baal, adding his voice to the heroes as they both cry out to El, the heavenly father, to allow Daniel's fate to shift and to allow him to have a son. But unlike Kirta, Daniel doesn't just want a son for reasons of political succession. Rather, it's seen as a great curse to be without the many blessings that a son offers, and I honestly can't summarize it better than Baal himself, who says, Let him have a son in his house, offspring within his palace. 
to set up his gravestone, to make the mark of his ancestral spirits in the sanctuaries, to rescue his spirit from the underworld, to protect his steps from grave dust, to stop his abuser's spite, to drive his troublers away, to grasp his arm when he's drunk, to support him when filled with wine, to eat his portion in Baal's house, and to share in the house of El, to repair his roof when it gets wet, and to wash his possessions when they get dirty. And what a pragmatic, earnest, and all-encompassing notion of the value of a son, probably stated with more genuine feeling than most writers nowadays are capable of. A son, in this view, is needed on a practical level to protect the spirit when it goes to the afterlife. But a son is also his father's champion, able to be young and strong when the father is old and wise. A son is his father's companion, drinking together and supporting him. A son is a partner to share the blessings a man has been granted from the gods. A son is a servant, to ease the many burdens of his father's life. It probably isn't the exact list that we would write nowadays, but again, it's refreshing to hear someone speaking plainly about what a blessing it is to have a son. Ball's prayer continues a bit longer, and in some broken fragments, he appears to move from proclaiming how good it is to have a son into a discussion of how much fun it is to engage in the act of procreation upon the couch, and how the act of embracing is really quite enjoyable. At the end of it all, El's heart is moved by the passionate plea, and he permits Daniel to father a son. That monologue of Baal that I read a moment ago gets repeated multiple times, like the chorus of a song. And here again, it's repeated in El's voice. As the poet says, Daniel's face beams, his brow lights up, he breaks out into laughter. He sets his feet up on the footstool, raises his voice and cries, Now I can sit down and rest. In my breast my heart can rest. Daniel is deeply relieved, but he still doesn't have children, just the promise of children. Fortunately, soon enough, there's a knock on the door, and an assortment of beautiful women have shown up at his house all of a sudden. Daniel is, naturally, thrilled at this development and recognizes them immediately as the Katharat, the many daughters of the moon. Now, we don't know much about the Katharat. There may have been seven of them. They were exceedingly beautiful. Their name means the skillful ones. And their particular skill was either bedroom fun times or childbirth or both. For seven days, Daniel wines and dines the daughters of the moon. And then they leave. It's not they who will bear his son, it seems. We don't hear much about his wife, a lady named Danatia, though in typical Bronze Age fashion, she's notable pretty much only for her physical beauty and her ability to act as a vessel for a man's children. She may or may not have had some sort of notable lineage, 
because that's about the only other thing valued in a Canaanite woman. So it goes. Still, Daniel and presumably his wife are said to delight in the bed of conception, and then they begin to count months until they reach nine. At the biologically appropriate time, Akat is born to Daniel's wife, and there is much rejoicing. His early life was apparently at one point summarized, but those sections are lost. When we next see the young boy, he's being honored by the gods for some reason after having grown into a fine young man. It seems likely that Akat has gained some skill as an archer, because his eyesight is apparently very keen. He has gained the attention of a Canaanite god named Kothar Wachasis, a pretty interesting little figure of his, in his own right. Kothar was believed to have been born in Egypt, and indeed there was a minor god of construction by that name in the land of the Nile. But, however, he made his way to Canaan. He managed to grow in that land into an all-encompassing deity of craftsmen, magic, architecture, and similar things. The fact that Akat has managed to gain the attention of such a notable deity tells us that this young man is doing quite well for himself. And as our story picks back up, Daniel is busy doing hero things around town, defending widows, threshing grain, and organizing the chiefs of the region. When he raises his eyes and sees, even though they're still many miles away, the great god Kothar, also called Chasis, also called Hayan. The craftsman god has been expected for the last seven days, for he's bringing a great bow and a set of arrows to go with it, which are apparently of divine quality. Daniel calls to his wife to go and kill a lamb to start a feast for the god. Kothar will be offered the best wine and food that Daniel has. The feast goes well, with many people in attendance. And at some point, for reasons that are not clear to us, Kothar ceremonially presents to Daniel the bow and arrows. Then, as soon as the god has left, Daniel strings the mighty bow and goes over to his son. He offers Akat a good bit of fatherly advice, then gives him the bow and arrow. Now, we can only assume that the god gave Daniel the bow with the intention of him passing it on to his son, since Daniel should not be seen as just rejecting or re-gifting something from heaven here. Anyway, it seems that Akat does lots of good things with this bow and seems to bring himself a great deal of renown as some more time passes. As the young Akat grows up into a fine young man with a fine young weapon at his hip, he draws the attention of the goddess Anat, who is either genuinely jealous of the fine bow he possesses, or is actually beginning to covet the meat arrow between his legs. The discussion they have has been read either as flirting or as a straightforward haggling over an item made out of actual wood. Given the poor state of preservation of this section, it's genuinely hard to tell, and I think it says more about your own mindset whether you see what follows as a euphemism for sexual relations or as a straightforward case of 
One child wants what another child has. Now, they're all at the feast, possibly at Daniel's house, since he seems to play host to the gods quite regularly, and Anat catches a glimpse of Akhat's weapon. She's been drinking quite heavily at this point, and is so overwhelmed by emotion that she throws her golden wine goblet and starts shouting loudly. Now, this is not at all out of character for Anat. Much like Ishtar, she's a goddess of passion. She's in charge of starting wars and making peace, though not so much related to the actual logistics of fighting wars. Similarly, she's more related to intimacy and passion in the bedroom than she is to pregnancy and childbirth. So getting drunk and desiring something is definitely in her wheelhouse. She shouts at Akat, Take all my money. I want your bow. I will shower you in gold and silver. Now, innocent Akat thinks she's a reasonable woman and offers her a reasonable reply. He really isn't authorized to give away a bow that was a gift from both a god and his father, and which he's probably quite attached to. But he tells her how he was able to get the bow made. Now, just get some wood from the cedars of Lebanon, some horn from the strongest ibex, some sinew from the strongest buffalo, tendons from a mighty bull, and the strongest reeds from the Mesopotamian marshlands. Which, we think, what, reeds? Those can't be exciting, but Mesopotamia is a long way away. Just being far away makes those reeds somewhat of an exotic good for a Canaanite. Anyway, take these fabled ingredients and bring them over to Kothar the craftsman. He's very helpful and makes great bows. Surely he would make you one too, since you're apparently like his sister or something. All the genealogies are so confused, I don't know. But what Akat doesn't immediately understand is that Anat doesn't want a fine bow. She wants Akat's bow. And she immediately jumps up to offer him immortality. He will be allowed to count the years with the gods. And if anything ever happens to Akat, Anat herself will revive him. But Akat just laughs, because apparently the idea of immortality is the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard. All men die, all men get embalmed, and all men get interred in the ground. Of course, Akat says, I will die suggesting that immortality is actually beyond Anat's power to grant. This is a more interesting theological statement than the narrator seems to realize, but we'll let it pass here because it's not theology, but casual misogyny that allows the hero Akat to shut down the goddess Anat. Bows, he says, are the weapons of warriors. Can you imagine how absurd it would be to see a woman hunting? Anna politely joins in the laughter that erupts in the banquet hall at Akhat's hilarious jest. But inwardly, she begins to plot. 
In her mind, she thinks, Come back to me, Akhat the hero. I warn you that if you come back to me, if I meet you in your pride and your rebellion, I will crush you under my feet, you cleverest of fellows. Then she leaves the feast, her heels so heavy that they shake the earth. She travels over to El, the heavenly father, and makes her polite bows to her divine king-ish, sort of. It's really ambiguous as to who is king in heaven, which we'll see in the next couple stories. Anyway, she then tells El that Akhat is really the worst man to ever stay in the earth. This speech apparently goes on for a while, though we're missing a bunch of it, and El's initial response to this is basically, I don't think he's all that bad. I hear he's a pretty good guy, all things considered. And that responded badly to this. Oh yeah, she said, you think he isn't that bad? How about I pull your stupid house down around you? How about I crush the things that you consider precious? How about I smash your face and make your head run with blood? Your stupid gray beard will be red with your own blood. And you know what? You can go and cry to Akhat to rescue you. You can look like a big fat dummy head because you will need Akhat the hero to save you from being bullied by Anat the girl. Then Father L, the kind and compassionate, takes a deep sigh and says, I know you're desperate, Anak, and you are not used to having anything resist you. Go on then, carry your anger inside you, and go accomplish the plan that's in your heart. Anyone who resists you will be beaten. And so, Having the reluctant consent of El, the father of the gods, Annette goes off to plot her revenge. Step one seems to involve some plotting with a lady known as Yatpan, the Satayan warrior. Now, is Yatpan a literal human from one of the Satayan desert tribes? Is she a divine bird that happens to be somehow affiliated with the region of some or all of the Satayan tribes? It's deeply unclear what exactly Yatpan is, aside from the fact that she is a woman and that she is described regularly with the epithet Satayan warrior. Add to the fact that we're not really certain how much nomadic tribes actually interacted with the cities, it's almost certain that the audience would have had an idea of who the Satayans were, but would the average audience member have ever seen a Satayan? If I had to, like, guess, maybe they had, but quite rarely, and probably haven't ever interacted meaningfully with one unless they were a soldier or merchant or had really unusual circumstances. So a Satayan warrior, then, is an exotic other, one easy to demonize, and likely distant enough from the experience of a Canaanite city dweller that the distinction between a supernatural enemy and a secular raider may have been extremely fuzzy. 
Anyway, having recruited Yatpan the Satayan warrior, Anat goes over to Akhat and pretends that all is forgiven, giving him specific instructions for where he can go for a majestic hunt, which she will divinely preside over in Akhat's honor and glory. It appears that Anat makes some sort of clever play to simply steal Akhat's bow away, but whatever she attempts the first time is unreadable. And so, her final plan falls to Yatpan, the Satayan warrior, and the two of them discuss the fact that Akhat is over in the mountains eating dinner, not suspecting a thing, while they are preparing weapons of war against him. Anat then transforms Yatpan into a hawk with divine magic. Though again, it isn't completely clear if it's Anat's magic doing the transforming on a pretty regular Satayan warrior, or if Yatpan has some inherent divinity or magic of her own. Apparently, they had trained hawks in Canaan even this early in history, and Anat carried the now avian Yatpan on her leather glove, much like a modern falconer might do, releasing her when they approached Akat and having her hide among the birds of the sky. At the exact right moment, Yatpan swoops down and strikes Akat on the head. Two, no, three times and Akhat's blood flows everywhere. Akhat sneezes out his soul, and the smoke of his soul flows out of his nostrils, leaving him dead in the dirt. Ever passionate, Anat weeps for dead Akhat, though so much of this is lost that it isn't clear if she truly regrets killing him or if she regrets that he just never complied with her demands. Meanwhile, the various birds swoop down and devour Akhat's corpse. Now, the opening of the third tablet in this story is in pretty bad shape. But interestingly, it opens with what appears to be a hymn or song recounting the events in Anat's voice, which happened in the previous two tablets. It is possible that during a performance of this tale in ancient Canaan, the show would pause for a brief interlude at this point, allowing the audience to get up and grab a snack or use the restroom or something like that. It isn't clear how long the full thing would have taken to read, given that it would likely have had a good deal of elaboration, improvisation, and repetition, oh my goodness, so much repetition, to pad the runtime, at least if we go by the pattern of other oral cultures. But it is interesting to see a last time on the tales of Akhat preserved in writing. I think it's cool. Anyway, last time on the tales of Akhat, Akhat died because Anad wanted his bow. Meanwhile, Daniel, the great and wise hero, was hanging out on his farm just as harvest time comes up. In his mind, he's super excited about all the good foods about to grow and all the righteous deeds he's going to do this year. But when he walks out of his house, he's confronted by his daughter Paghit, who is weeping. She explains that she has seen a vision that suddenly a great famine of seven or eight years is upon them. Daniel is so saddened by this 
that he joins his daughter in weeping and tears his clothes in grief. Did people really do that? Get sad and think that the right thing to do was rip off their clothes? I mean, it's a trope in biblical literature as well, likely a common one in the Canaanite cultural sphere, but it seems like such a strange reaction to sadness. I've never once felt it necessary to destroy my clothing because of grief, though also I've never received news of a prophecy that there would be a multi-year drought, so perhaps I just don't understand. Anyway, wise Daniel immediately feels a change in the air, the heat settling upon the Canaanite dust, and calls upon his daughter to help him enact a ritual that may help things. Daniel gets on his donkey and starts riding around the field. He goes up to his wheat stalks, hugs and kisses them, and whispers lovingly to them that they must not fail, for Akat will be home soon to collect them. Still, as he goes from place to place in his field, the earth is drying, and the dirt is cracking beneath his very feet, and the plants are immediately dying. Daniel keeps promising the plants that Akat will be home soon, but it seems the plants know what's up, even if the proud father does not. Suddenly, while they're out in the rapidly drying field, two messengers arrive with news. The messengers are probably the worst messengers in Canaan, for when they arrive, they say nothing at all to Daniel or his daughter, who's still hanging around. Instead, they start miming, getting hit on the head and falling down, and the two of them then weep. Daniel looks at them, and he can make nothing at all of this absurd spectacle. And finally, the two messengers stand up and just loudly proclaim that Daniel's son, Akat the hero, is dead, slain by Anat. The story then rather poetically tells us Daniel's reaction. Below, his feet tremble. Above, his face perspires. Around, his loins crack. The joints of his loins shake. Those of his back give way. Then he raises his voice and cries out in despair to the heavens, terribly upset that his blessing from the gods, his beloved son and helper, the mighty hero Akhat, has been slain. Finally, he notices the birds in the sky, and it seems that in some gap of the text he either figures out through great wisdom or is just told by somebody that the birds ate the corpse of his son. Daniel swears bitter curses at the sky, demanding that the god Baal shatter the wings of every bird in the area so that he may rip open their bellies and look for his son. And sure enough, like some dramatic Hollywood special effect, the power of his shout, aided by the god Baal, shatters the wings of the birds overhead and they all come crashing down to the earth. Daniel then takes a big knife and goes one by one ripping open their bellies. But each time he guts a bird, he finds that the bird has not eaten his son, and so he moves on to the next one. Finally, he's gutted every single bird 
in the whole world. And none of them have the half-digested corpse of Akhat the hero. Daniel is terribly upset about this, but Daniel is such a good sport that standing around a field of birds that he has just crippled and vivisected, he calls out to Ball again, asking that Ball fix the birds back up. Immediately, the birds all heal and fly away, probably intent on never again casting a shadow above Daniel. But this is a problem for Daniel. He knows, somehow, that his son's corpse was eaten by birds, but he's just gutted every single bird on the earth. But then he realizes he hasn't gutted any of the birds up in heaven and calls out to Baal to break the divine wings of Hargub, the father of all birds. Now, Baal is apparently a bigger fan of Daniel than he is of the divine bird Hargub, and soon enough, a massive sacred bird crashes down at Daniel's feet. Hargub is gutted on Daniel's knife, but even this divine godbird has no digested Akhat corpse inside. Daniel calls out to Baal again to have Hargub healed, which happens immediately. But then Daniel remembers Samal, the divine mother of all birds, who also comes crashing to the earth at Daniel's command with Baal's assistance. Here, finally, he rips open the bird's belly, and there is the half-digested corpse of his son, Akhat. Daniel pulls the body out and weeps and buries him in a particular place, laying a curse on all birds that if they fly above Akhat's grave, their wings will be shattered. Then, Daniel somehow knows the exact location where Akhat was killed and curses that location to be clothed in leprosy for all time. Then, Daniel picks up his staff, which is apparently named Fate, because all cool weapons have to have cool names, and walks over to a place called, maybe, Mararat Tagulal Banir, near Akhat's death site, and curses it to never have crops growing from that place ever again. Then he smacks the ground with his staff. Then he walks over to the town of Abeluma, and curses the entire town to blindness, and smacks the city with his staff. Finally, Daniel comes home and has hired professional mourners to stay in his house and cry full-time for the next seven years, which seems like a pretty challenging job, but at least they have Daniel right there with them, weeping harder than any of them. Then, abruptly, in year seven, the heroism returns into Daniel's soul, as if grief had made it all somehow vanish for a time, and he kicks out all the mourners and starts praying to the gods for revenge, burning all the incense in the land of Harna. Revenge comes in the form of his daughter Paghit, who volunteers to go forth and slay her brother's killer. Daniel prays that his daughter have strength and safety, then sends her out in the wilderness to go get some murdering done. Step one is a visit to the ocean, where she bathes and puts on makeup. 
she squeezes a shellfish onto her face to produce something like rouge, which makes ancient makeup way more hardcore than modern cosmetics. She then puts on what the story calls a hero's outfit, which we can only assume was the ancient Canaanite version of a Dungeons and Dragons costume. She then grabs a knife and a sword and tops it all off with an attractive woman's outfit to cover it all up. Thus disguised, Paghit sneaks into the camp of Yatpan, the Satayan warrior, and poses as a serving girl. Yatpan is there drinking heavily and has apparently spent the whole last seven years doing nothing but drunkenly boasting about how she killed Akhat. Yatpan even calls her new serving girl to drink with her, and Paghat drinks, and then she poisons the wine cup and passes it back to Yatpan. But now that she's poisoned the cup, Yatpan drinks from a different cup and unknowingly hands the poisoned cup back to Paghit. Paghit's heart beats like a ram and twists like a snake, and she carefully avoids drinking it. This first time, she's able to use the drunkenness of those around her to carefully avoid drinking the poisoned cup, and passes it back to Yatpan. But the cup returns to her a second time, undrunk. And right as Paghit is debating what to do about this difficult situation, facing a cup of poisoned wine, the narrator of the story says, now we return to looking at what Daniel is doing at this very moment, showing that ancient storytellers definitely knew how to build up tension and leave cliffhangers in stories, evidence of a literary maturity that many people who really should know better do not believe was invented by humanity until the Greek period. But then Tablet 3 ends, promising an exciting final tablet which will satisfyingly and excitingly wrap up the story of Akat. Tablet 4, however, has never been found by modern archaeology. Is Paghit forced to drink her own poisoned wine cup? Does she manage to poison Yatpan? Do matters instead devolve into a drunken sword fight? We simply don't know. Other questions like, whatever happened to Akhat's bow, are also unanswerable. However, from tiny mentions and fragments of other stories, we do think that after Paghit and Yatpan have their showdown, Yatpan ends up dead. Perhaps Paghit kills her, or perhaps Daniel has to come and finish off Yatpan after another of his children is killed. Daniel then confronts Anat, and it isn't clear what happens here, but no one dies, and at the end of the story, Akhat is returned to life either because Anat repents of her selfishness or because Baal gets sick of Anat's childishness and brings the hero Akhat back to life. This is an occupational hazard of the oldest stories. They sometimes end on 3,000-year-old cliffhangers. At least we can hold out hope that some future excavation will find that last tablet someday, but for now, the ending of Akhat's story 
lives on only in our head and in whatever internet fan fiction we choose to write about this. And so, with little more than fragments left to inform us about the circumstances of Daniel and Akat, we must move on to perhaps the greatest surviving story from Canaan. This is the famous Baal cycle, the great epic of the Canaanite gods. So join us next time as Baal, El, Yam, Mat, and Atthar struggle over universal kingship in the Canaanite heavens. Thank you for listening.